if you could pick up a church Bible and turn to page 673, I'm going to be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 to uh, chapter 6, verse 2. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a high one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth possessions and honor so that they lack nothing, their, their heart's desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Well, we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes where we are hearing an individual known as the teacher's thoughts of life under the sun in this world. And unlike Proverbs, where it gives the perspective that living the right kind of life will mean an expected result, that if you want life to go a certain way for you, then you play by these certain rules. The teacher here says, although that's true some of the time, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, as we've seen in previous chapters, he uses the word meaningless to describe life. Not that things are pointless or life has no meaning, But the teacher is using this to describe that life is temporary, it's fleeting. Like smoke, you can see it, but if you go to grab it, it disappears. Or or it's used in the sense that it's an enigma, that it's puzzling, unexplainable, contradictory. So the author is saying life is something you can't explain and you can't control it. It's unpredictable, unstable. However much you think you've got something pinned down and you understand it, you get hit by a curveball and get completely derailed. 
And so throughout this book, the teacher is asking the question, what do you find meaning in? What do you invest your time in? And whatever that is, he deconstructs it, critiques it, and says, you think you can trust in pleasure, giving you satisfaction, or you think career and working hard will grant that expectation? Well, actually, think again. And so in this text, he comes to wealth, money. He says, the love, the love of money is meaningless. It doesn't deliver. It's like smoke. It's unstable, unpredictable. You can't rely on it as solid. The teacher in this text presents to us an example of injustice going on in verse 8 to 9, observing the reality of oppression within the community. And that this oppression is committed by those in a position with authority and abusing it. And the teacher could very well have in mind the greed of those pursuing wealth that's causing it. But I want to draw and focus on the teacher's response in verse 8, where he says about this oppression, he says, don't be surprised at such things. It happens. There's a a link here of the benefit and attraction of increasing wealth for all involved in verse 9. But the damage that the love and pursuit of increasing wealth can do to others, verse 8, and the damage it can do to ourselves in verse verse 10. Because if you're like the king in verse 9, someone that reaps the benefit of great fortune, it's not all what it's cracked up to be. And so the next few verses, the teacher is going to explain to us what to expect if you do find your meaning in wealth. Verses 10 to 11. If you love money and find meaning in wealth, you may never be satisfied with what you have, even when it increases. Why? Well, one common thing that happens when we earn more is that our lifestyles change and we get comfortable with certain things that we're able to do or have, which before may not have been possible and we get used to it. And so the idea of going back to what you maybe once earned can be very uncomfortable. And all along, if the dice was rolled and with a different outcome where you didn't have the opportunity to get that vital qualification that opened that career door, or you didn't get that job or promotion which gave you a salary that meant you could afford to live in zone T, then you wouldn't even have the wealth that you've got. But then what if you find that you're extremely rich but not happy, what good then is your money? So verse 11, he says, and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? You might conclude from looking at a large bank account that it means security and stability. And maybe for the moment when you see that figure, there is a kind of reassurance and comfort. But then the teacher counters that in verse 12. Have a look what he says. And he says, actually, if you do have abundance, then there's no rest. That abundance permits that those with great wealth have no sleep. You have much to keep account of. Steady anxiety creeps in because you have attention from others. And not necessarily the kind you want. Not only is there the physical danger of robbery and harm due to being an attractive target, but... I bet it's an exhausting experience if you fall into the world of having to keep up appearances for the sake of status. But worst of all, if you have great abundance of wealth, you have a lot more to lose. But that's just it, the teacher says. 
Because life under the sun, this world that we live in, it's not only confusing and unsatisfying, but life under the sun, he says, can turn very, very brutal. He calls it a grievous evil, verse 13 to 17. Because what if you do lose it all? And it happens. Everything you've worked for lost in an instant. And it may or may not even be your fault. Well, in verse 13 to 15, the teacher sums up the accumulation of wealth as a complete pointless aim when it comes down to it at the end. It's not stable. It may not always be there. And with the noble aim of providing for your family and setting a foundation for your children or the next generation, that goal could be wiped in a moment if that wealth is lost. And even if that wealth is not lost through some misfortune, he says in verse 15, you can't take it with you when you die anyway. And what you've worked so long and hard for doesn't last. And then in verse 16 to 17, he joins everyone together. Wealthy and poor, whoever you are, that all of us are the same. We come, we eat, we die. All done in darkness, he says, and with a lot of pain. So with any gain, whatever wealth you acquire and work hard for under the sun, in this fleeting, contradictory, broken and confusing world, has no lasting value and no meaning. That's where he's going. Um, In the current hit series, uh, The Good Place on Netflix, which is a comedy set in the afterlife, uh, one of the main characters, Eleanor, who is almost at the end of herself after going through quite a journey of self-discovery, asks the question to an all-knowing entity called Janet. Tell me the answer. You know all there is to know about the universe. Crunch the numbers. Tell me the answer. There has to be meaning to existence. Otherwise, the universe is just made of pain, and I don't like the thought of that. So tell me the answer. And she gets the response by this all-knowing entity. But since nothing in life seems to make sense, when you do find something or someone that does, that's the key. And so Eleanor responds with acceptance that In all life's pain, chaos and meaningless, all you can do is find happiness with what you have in the here and now. And you know what? The writers of The Good Place do make a slight point that the teacher would veer in the direction to agree with. And it's something that we can actually be very thankful for, which the teacher says is good. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. Some of you here may play a team sport. You do it a lot, regularly. Because you enjoy it. But there's a certain dish or or type of food that your eyes are drawn to straight when you look at the menu. Because it tastes great. Maybe you're one of those small percent of people who uh, who love their work and find huge satisfaction in what you do. That's brilliant. And for all of us, when we experience moments of joy, laughter, encouragement from friends and family, and all those little things that give great warmth, all of this is a gift from God. It comes from him. It points to him. And it's meant to be enjoyed. The teacher is agreeing and says, yes, 
It's good when you find satisfaction and contentment of any kind from the things of the earth. You're meant to. When you do feel exhilarated after you've won a race, or when you step back and take in something that you've created and get that sense of achievement afterwards. If you do have wealth which allows you to enjoy a holiday, a sandy beach with an amazing sunset, a mountain hike, a spa weekend, it's right to enjoy it. If you do find contentment in anything that you have, know that it's a gift from God. And our response should be one of gratitude. But the teacher doesn't end there, does he? We're left in chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, with a serious and sobering thought that the teacher concludes with in our text. If God withholds that gift of enjoyment, you can have all the wealth, affirmation, and possessions that the world can give and yet be deeply discontent with your life. Um, Cynthia Heimel, who used to write for The Village Voice in New York, it's a culture magazine, um, has this very famous quote. I pity celebrities. No, no, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you the deepest wishes and giggles merrily when you realise you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And so in verse 2 of chapter 6, the teacher reacts again to this tragedy of this. He concludes his thought that the quest for meaning in any kind of gain and the love of money is not only meaningless but a grievous evil. That's where the teacher ends in this part of the text. But it's not where God ends. Because beyond the book of Ecclesiastes, God has a word to say about this grievous evil under the sun. Both the damage it has done to the oppressed, as well as damage it has done to the one who oppresses. See, God steps into our world under the sun. Jesus Christ dies on the cross where the final consequence of our evil fell on Jesus. And it's on the cross that this meaninglessness, unexplainable, contradictory, confusing, unstable enigma of life, with all its grievous evil, is cleared away and a new, restored hope is presented to us. A new earth, beautiful, stable, and full of real, lasting, eternal meaning. And because of this new hope that God has shown us through Christ's work on the cross, he offers us a new way in how we might view wealth. A new way to set our hearts on real, lasting wealth. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not a wealth that looks like a massive bank account or a stunning apartment in NW3, but a life lived in and for Christ in light of a brand new, lasting and meaningful future. In his book, A Certain Risk, uh, Paul Andrew Richardson gives this account. He says, As an eye surgeon, Dr. Friesen, otherwise known as Herb, could have amassed a lot of money and gone straight to the top of the ladder. But he and his wife, Ruth, were a little different. Herb was an ophthalmologist with a great imagination, and for him, the ability to perform surgery to damaged eyes was far too precious of a skill to be wasted on petty pursuits of piling up money in his bank account. Herb wanted to chase God-sized dreams. He was inspired to use every ounce of his medical skills on the creative edge. Herb and Ruth were amazing investors living in Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded. From an eternal perspective, this was like dropping one's life savings into Microsoft in 1976. Instead of running for safety, this remarkable couple made an astonishing decision. For them was an opportunity worth dying for. In what might have been considered the most dangerous region in the planet, Herb and Ruth unleashed their creative talents in response to widespread chaos and human desperation. During the conflict, thousands of Afghans, especially children, were mutilated by explosives. All along, Herb and Ruth were determined to be the body of Christ to be God's hands, live with God's heart, and respond with a tangible, visible expression of God's love. Herb worked with others to establish eye hospitals and clinics for training Afghan doctors in Kabul, Ms. Sharif, and Herat. Before his death, Herb trained more than 30 Afghan eye doctors. Today, he is remembered by uncounted thousands for his gentle manner and his unrelenting passion for serving the masses. A friend once asked him if he had any regrets about his life, even while his medical school classmates were enjoying their fabulous retirements in the plushest golf resorts in Florida. The question was met with a curious expression, then with a big laugh. Thank goodness he concluded his friend was cracking a joke. Now that's, that's a view, that's a vision, and it's going to look different for all of us and in different ways to different degrees. And so the teacher asks, where are you finding meaning? Well, if your desire is to find meaning in earthly wealth, Jesus says, let me be that wealth instead. And what is accumulated through a life of Christ-centeredness will last forever. Now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your many gifts that you give to us. Thank you for creation. Thank you for the ability to enjoy them. Lord, forgive us when we find meaning in other things, when we find meaning specifically in money and wealth and security. Lord, we ask uh, by your spirit, by grace, that you help us to live in a way that we can know what it means to store up treasures in heaven for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.